and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. And this week, we're listening to an interview that you did with Washu. Yeah, so Washu is a staff writer at The New Yorker, and he is also a professor of literature at Bard College. Bard? Wait, did you go to Bard? I did. Oh, okay. So hometown hero. Um, (laughs) Yeah. yeah, But the reason I bring that up is because the memoir is like very, very thoughtful. It's very enjoyable to read. And also the content is something that I found really engrossing because on the one hand, he's telling a story about the death of his friend. He's kind of reckoning with, and this is not a spoiler at all, a very close friend of his in college, you know, which is when you form these really unique and very intense friendships, uh, was killed quite suddenly in a carjacking that went wrong. And so it's the story of both Washu growing up. And so that's the part that I love this kind of 90s period where people are using fax machines and pagers. And it's this what we kind of were talking about in the interview as a slow friendship. Right. So slow because you just didn't have this hyper mediated social media connected world. And so he develops this very intense friendship and then reckons with the loss of this friend. So it's really, really smart. Um, It thinks a lot about, as I was saying, like kind of 90s culture, slow friendship, zines. He works on a lot of zines during the period of his life that he's recounting. And I find that endlessly fascinating. And then there's lots of interesting reflections on. Asian American identity, and particularly this friend of his is from a multiple generations of Japanese Americans, so has a very different relationship to American culture and identity than Washu does as a first generation child of of Taiwanese immigrants. So all of those things, it's fascinating just in terms of the, the human story of reckoning with a kind of unfathomable death, and then also kind of getting a sense of of who you are at a particular moment in time from a particular perspective. So I thoroughly enjoyed it and hope wow. that our listeners will too. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That, that all sounds really, really up my alley. And I'm, I'm sorry, I couldn't have been there as well, but I have the book. I'm going to read it and I can't wait to listen to your interview. All right, let's get to it. Excited to have Wa Shu on the line with me today. Wa is a staff writer at The New Yorker and a professor of literature at Bard College. He is also the author of A Floating Chinaman, Fantasy and Failure Across the Pacific, a study of the work of H.T. Song, a Chinese immigrant writer whose early and mid-20th century novels gave representation to a subject caught between China and the United States' shifting geopolitical relationship. Wa joins me today to discuss his latest book, Stay True. The memoir recounts Wa's feelings of being caught between the Taiwanese culture of his immigrant parents and the burgeoning Silicon Valley suburbs in which he was raised. A lifeline of sorts is thrown to him in the form of Ken Ishida, a confident young man from a multi-generational Japanese-American family. At first, it seems that Ken has everything Wa lacks, the looks, the easy social confidence, a finger on the pulse of American culture. But during their friendship those first years of college, the young men support and lean on each other as they grow into adults with bright, if intangible, futures ahead of them. But one night, a shocking and random act of violence takes Ken away, 
and Juan and his friends must try to make sense of a senseless tragedy and pull back together the broken lives left in its wake. Welcome to the show, Juan. I'm thrilled to be speaking with you. Thanks for having me. Can we talk just a little bit at the beginning about your experience growing up? You know, there's lots of kind of cultural interchange and enduring sense, I think, of being an outsider that seems to have always stuck with you. And something in particular that I felt very resonant with my mother-in-law, who's a Cuban immigrant, is the thing that you say about your mom suddenly judging the new Taiwanese immigrants for not (laughs) behaving appropriately at the Asian supermarket, which is something I've heard a version of that many, many times. So can you just talk a little bit about this experience that you had growing up? Of course. I think young people, and it, it applies to children, immigrants, or, you know, people who've been here longer, like you only really understand your own context. And so when I was growing up, I think I nurtured these feelings of being an outsider, just sort of internalizing some of the kind of marginality, I think, inherent to being the child of immigrants, being an Asian American, sort of growing up in predominantly white spaces. I don't think at the time I realized just how acculturated or how open-minded my parents were. You know, I think Mm. when you're young, you're just sort of constantly looking for an answer. You're looking for a sort of place to slot yourself in, right? A category that makes sense to you. And, you know, my parents, they came from Taiwan in the late 60s, early 70s. They were here for graduate school. They met in the United States. You know, my dad was really into rock music. My mom was really into American movies, American pop music. They're fairly like fluent culturally, but also linguistically. But, you know, as a child, you sort of fixate on what you don't have. I think that I wasn't sure necessarily where I fit in, and I projected that on my parents too. But of course, they were too busy to actually worry about these things or or think about them the way I was thinking about them. Now, can we talk a little bit about your early relationship with Ken? Can you kind of talk about what first appealed to you about him? (laughs) Very little, to be honest with you. Um, and, And that's sort of one of the things that I try and explore in the book. As a teenager, I was really entranced with like independent culture, underground culture. I was making my own zines. I was always at the record store, just haunting used bookstores. And when I went to Berkeley, I really was seeking out people who were essentially just like me. You know, I Mm. I only wanted, I was in search of my tribe and I really wanted just people who knew all the same references I did, people who liked the same music that I like, but can introduce me to new things too. And so when I first met Ken in the dorms, you know, he was sort of confident. He was like in a frat. There were like all these things about him Mm -hmm. that that were very different from how I perceived myself. Like I thought I would just be like a college radio kid who made zines and, you know, went to basement shows and things like that. In retrospect, I was also incredibly generic, just in a very different way than (laughs) than I found like him to be generic. Yeah, we just didn't really seem to have all that much in common. And I was very judgmental. Like I pretty much saw anyone with a bad CD collection as someone with like kind of deep, deep moral flaws. But, you know, over time, as soon as we started to actually talk, as soon as we actually started to hang out, I sort of began to realize how closed-minded I'd been, you know, just sort of how Mm. shut off I'd been to people who were actually more similar to me than I initially thought. 
There's something about the moments that you're describing of your early kind of friendship with Ken that strike me as very particular to that late 1990s and early 2000s <laughs> moment, you know, yeah. which I share, right? So the things that you're sharing, right? You're sharing mixtapes, you're sharing aimless car rides, you're checking your pagers. The references to pagers was something that I feel like <laughs> anyone born in the late 90s will have no recollection of what that is. It's a very bizarre concept. So obviously you're making these friendships at a time before smartphones, before the hyper-connectivity of mm-hmm. social media. And I'm wondering, like, do you think that impacted the way that you forged friendships, you know, both with Ken or others? You know, even just the way that you were describing that before, I wonder if there would have been an openness to someone who seemed at first so different if you were encountering him in our kind of contemporary hyper-connected and hyper-labeled world? That's a great question. And it's something I think about a lot. I was sort of an equal opportunity hater. Like there were plenty of people <laughs> that I I judged, you know, even people who I was clearly already friends with. I was sort of like, mm-hmm. oh, like, when am I going to meet the people who are into like the exact same things I'm into? And it wasn't just Ken, like a lot of my friends were probably more tolerant <laughs> towards me than I was to them, even mm-hmm. though I thought that I was the enlightened one. Your question is really interesting because there is an aspect of the book where it's, you know, it's about friendship, it's about growing up, it's about youth and identity. It's also a bit about technology because there were only, you know, I could only communicate with my father when we moved to Taiwan via a fax machine. Um, I love this particular segment of the book because it is both a beautiful relationship that your father has with you, but it is also something that is so viscerally felt from my own childhood is that those mm-hmm. faxes were both magic, even though today they would seem like some kind of dinosaur, you know, tablet yeah. <laughs> communication. But yeah, you know, I mean, do you think that that was the slowness of that? Like there's a moment where you describe your yeah. father because of the time change would respond to faxes within 24 hours. Yeah. But if he didn't respond within 24 hours, then it was like, well, maybe for school stuff, we can get you a tutor or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Can you just talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think it is in that time lag that life Mm. is happening. Mm -hmm. And, you know, going back to the question about friendship and meeting people, you know, I teach at a college now and I feel like over the past, you know, five or six cohorts of students I've taught from first year to senior year, they get to campus essentially having a sense of who's out there. I mean, admittedly, the schools I teach at are kind of small colleges. Mm -hmm. Berkeley is like a massive school. But, you know, I think oftentimes now institutions like colleges, high schools, they'll sort of prepare you for entry by giving you access to like a Facebook page or some sort of like info sheet where you can seek out the other people who are into the stuff you're into. I remember one year I was teaching a class of first years and they had already had this like really robust debate on their first year Facebook group about like this possibly problematic rapper, you know? So by the time Mm. everyone got to campus, everyone's positions on this musician, they were already staked. I think that there is a sort of, I don't think my book's necessarily nostalgic, but thinking back, I do appreciate how for me personally, I just had to, we all had to just make friends with the people in our dorm. We were constantly, every semester, seeking out new experiences, new adventures, new comrades. 
But it's the people who stuck around, the people who you grew with, the people who you experienced things with. Those ended up being the really meaningful connections. And maybe they weren't connections that would have been the ones that would have you know, persisted had you entered mm. into college with this menu of people and their interests. So I think there is something to the slowness of life then, even though obviously life felt very fast or it felt like as exciting as you wanted it to be. There was this kind of lag, you know, like you page someone, you don't know if they're going to page you back. Right. You go by someone's house in order to see what they're doing. You call someone, maybe they don't call you back. But there was a kind of, I don't know, meandering quality that I didn't appreciate as such at the time. You spend a great deal of time in the book also talking about zine culture, for lack mm-hmm. of a better word, kind of your yeah. own experience making zines. And that itself, you know, it's weird. Like I was in Mexico City traveling recently and went into a bookstore and there was a, more of an arts bookstore and there was a tiny little section that still has zines, right? But there was there was a time when I remember, especially in the late 90s, like seeing there was everybody had a zine and yeah. it was all kind of wild and crazy. And now it seems like this very rarefied, almost itself produced by people who don't have nostalgia for it, but it feels like a nostalgic reaction. Oh um, yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it, yeah. I don't, I can't wrap my words around it right now, but it is this odd thing that I think also speaks to a kind of slowness or personal ingenuity in a way that like, as you eventually realize, you know, you get a new kind of page layout software that makes mm-hmm. zines <laughs> super easy to do. You know, now I could do things in InDesign or in Photoshop that I never could have done on PageMaker or yeah. something super old like that, or even Microsoft Paint. But can you talk a little bit about kind of your experience with zines and whether or not you're nostalgic for that moment or if you think something has taken the place of zines? I don't think anything's taken the place, mostly because we live in such a different kind of media ecosystem, just a different culture altogether. It's hard to be nostalgic for it because I think if we could somehow time travel and talk to 19-year-old me and lay out like all the pros and cons of the internet <laughs> and Spotify and you know Facebook and all these things, I'm pretty sure that teenager would say like, I'll take it, you know, yeah. regardless of all that. So I think even though there's a temptation, I think someone might read my book and think like, wow, this is a lot of just, this is like a very romantic ver-. It's not really that because I think the people in the book would desperately want access to all the things we sort of take for granted nowadays. But I think the, I don't know if inflection point, but the the sort of distinction that I find really interesting is you know, there's this quote, I think it's by Randolph Bourne about the young person who steps into too much of the world too quickly. And I think what a zine was for me, circa you know, 1992 or 1994, was a way of entering into this larger world, right? To send out this distress signal, to send out this message in a bottle. And there is that kind of randomness, like perhaps no one will ever see this. I think in the case of my zine, like Nobody ever saw them, right? <laughs> that was true of most scenes. Yeah. You know? But, you know, you would have these random kind of magical connections you would make. Like someone would find one. Someone would send you theirs and you would send them yours. And I think it was a very manageable way to enter into this larger world. And I think that it's much more difficult nowadays to enter into this larger world in any manageable way. 
like as long as you're on the internet, there's no way to prevent yourself from like accidentally going viral, you know, <laughs> or doing something that that you quickly lose control of. And that was very difficult to do in the 1990s. I think I probably would have like wanted that in the 1990s. You know, sure. I think the zine was definitely a way of trying to find people. And if you could find like thousands of people at once, like that doesn't sound so bad. Nowadays, like that gives me kind of terror, right? The idea that <laughs> that yeah. that could happen. But it's funny what you said about your experience in Mexico City. I taught a class about zines recently, and I have noticed that a lot of undergrads are making them or mm. people in their 20s. And it's not because they necessarily feel this direct connection to, you know, like Riot Girl movement or anything like that. But I see it as, you know, akin to me buying records in the 1990s. Like I didn't have to do that. Uh, but okay. there was something maybe, and I wasn't necessarily being nostalgic for my parents' record collections, but, you know, there was a kind of, it was a deliberate choice and maybe there's something political about it. Maybe you could convince yourself there's something political about it, but there's just a deliberateness to limiting the scope of your communication. And I think a zine does that. And I think maybe for young people, there's something very novel about that. You know, like you have to get this from me. Everything else, everyone can have access to all the time on the internet. So. I don't know, maybe it is a slowness that they never experienced, but that appeals to them for some reason. And the physical object form, I Absolutely. think, too, is like key there, which accretes its own kind of cultural capital in a mostly virtual world. Yeah. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Hua Xu, author of Stay True. We'll return to that interview in just a moment. But first, we have this week's book recommendation. We're excited to have Andrew Sean Greer back with us on the line today. Andrew is the author most recently of Less is Lost, and he joins us for this week's book recommendation. So, Andrew, what book are you recommending? I'm recommending Fiebre Tropical by Juliana Delgado Lopera. Oh, I love this book. Actually, Do you know this book? Them. Yeah, I adore Huli and I love this book, but please tell me what you love about it. What I love is the, there's an energy to the storytelling that is just unbelievable. It's so like just thrilling to read this narrator. But also what I think is a, a leap forward in storytelling is the use of Spanish and English together without those italics that mark Spanish as the non-English language or or something to explain it. It's understood through text and it's told exactly the way someone would speak, where some topics are Spanish topics, some are English topics, and it just feels natural and unapologetically true and um, moving and exciting. And I think we're getting a new novel from them very soon. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping because I just think this is one of the exciting writers today. And how did you come across Huli's book? I've actually known Huli in San Francisco for a while, but not as a, a writer. And so mm. when I just bought their book in the bookstore because it had a shiny pink palm tree on it and picked it up <laughs> and I hadn't connected this writer to the amazing 
vibrant, check out the Instagram, by the way, every one person <laughs> that I knew. And although once I understood I was reading this writer's work, I, as a person, as a writer, I understood that immediacy and flamboyance and serious political intent were in this book too. And it's just so exciting when you see someone who really writes themselves and does it so artfully, because I'm fussy about language. And that's what I really loved about the book. That sounds great. Can you give us the title and author one more time? It's Fiebre Tropical, and it's by Juli Delgado Lopera. Thank you so much. We've been speaking to Andrew Sean Greer, author most recently of Less is Lost. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Hua Xu, author of Stay True. So I want to get back to Ken, because I could talk to you forever about zines and pagers (laughs) and stuff like that. But, you know, you spend a good deal of the early part of the book kind of reflecting on both yourself feeling like an outsider and in some ways early on envying Ken's apparent ability Mm -hmm. to at least, you know, appear or function as an insider, right? This is his confidence. It's also his fluency with certain things that you also very importantly reject. You know, that's your like kind of positioning of yourself is you don't like Dave Matthews Band, you don't like Abercrombie and Fitch and things like that. But one of the things that you get at, which I found interesting, if maybe not surprising, is that on the one hand, you're both Asian, right? So you don't, mm-hmm. there's ways in which you're marked apart from American cultural mainstream. There's a great moment where you're talking about Ken potentially being recruited when the real world real was going world, yeah. around to college campuses. And he's like, hey, how come you don't ever cast anybody that's like me? It's like, oh, well, you don't really have a personality, which is its own historical <laughs> kind of record. <laughs> but you know, even though you did share that commonality, you talk a lot about how your experiences seem to render you both in almost entirely different worlds. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that frisson, which I think for you becomes in college a kind of political consciousness, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily for Ken. I don't think it's like a real dichotomy between the two of us. There is a sort of flattening that I think just naturally takes place in narrative. But so much of what I, I think found suspect about him was just purely my own insecurity and my own projections. (laughs) You know, like I thought that he was this kind of confident, debonair person. You know, he was confident. He was a much kinder person than I was, but he wasn't without his own sense of disenchantment, right? He wasn't without his own sense of wanting more from the world. And, you know, me having come out of this world of making zines and sort of assuming that no one would ever hear me, assuming that no one would ever take me seriously and just sort of like cultivating that, nurturing that sense of alterity into this is my corner of the world. Like I have no problem painting myself in the corner as long as it's mine, you know? That's where I was coming from. I was like, you'll never be disappointed if you never expect anything in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I think he, to his credit, expected much more. And whether that was because of the way he was brought up or all these other reasons I projected upon him this different relationship to America and to sort of like, I guess, like normativity, you know, it's something that we talked about a lot. It was something that I found 
really interesting that I would never expect anything like. And so if you don't expect anything like that, it's very easy to then kind of demand the most outlandishly radical visions possible. Mm. And he was much more, I think, pragmatic. Like he was still, I wouldn't say he wasn't political, but he was just much more practical in his sense of what could be done. There's this moment in the book when also a moment from life when we were walking through campus and there was this protest and we both found the protest troubling, but for totally different reasons. Like for me, it was because I was like hanging out with the kind of like student radical, like progressive kids. And we just had beef with this specific group. Mm -hmm. For him, it was more like, you know, your messaging is very like off-putting to someone like me. And I don't know, it was like a moment I thought about a lot because we then went on to like write this op-ed together. And he was very much just more like, well, you still need to build coalitions and build allies and to have the lawyers and the teachers along with the barricades. Whereas I was just like, in my mind, I was like, these people are actually like CIA plants. And <laughs> and my group is like- And some of that might have been. I mean, you know, we don't, you know what? Yeah, like, yeah. I think it's within the realm of possibility. <laughs> I still think about that specific group. But um, we were just coming at it from totally different angles. And, you know, I do wonder if that kind of, I don't know, collaboration is necessarily happening as much. The other thing that characterizes your relationship with Ken is, for lack of a better word, and I think it's actually quite telling that at least in American culture, we don't really have a word for this, is the sort of romance of it. I mean, I recognize it in very, very few, perhaps only one of my friendships, particularly with men. It's a very rare thing, this sort of platonic devotion that you have to one another that is not based in some amorous or erotic impulse, yet has all the intensity of those feelings, right? Like this other person truly becomes like a world for you. Can you talk about that experience of friendship and what that was like? Yeah, I think, you know, I made so many like intimate friendships when I was at Berkeley. In some ways, this book is very much like a love letter to Berkeley as well, just mm. because it was a place that brought so many really important people into my life, Ken being one of them. You know, I've thought about this a lot, in part because when I was writing it, I had no real, you know, as you know, it's not as though this kind of male friendship or just friendship amongst two people like me and him, it's not necessarily, I couldn't find that many books necessarily that sort of depicted the type of friendship that I was trying to render in my writing. Mm -hmm. And part of it, I, I just wondered if my fixation on this specific friendship is because there was a, an end to it. You know what I mean? Like the intensity of it only becomes apparent once it's no longer there. And you have a reason to then go back and scrutinize it and sort of obsess over it. I feel like a lot of my friendships in college were actually quite intense in this way. I think in, in the case with Ken, a lot of it is really, a lot of it is stuff that honestly didn't make sense to me till much later because hmm. I think I was just a bit more of a, like a late bloomer maybe, or just someone who, I think I was just someone who didn't necessarily aspire to be as 
kind as he was, if that mm. makes sense. Like, yeah, I think back a lot to, I think one of the reasons I was so kind of stuck in the past for quite a while, because, you know, the book does detail not just the evolution of our friendship and the aftermath, but also just the years afterward when I would just kind of fixate on our friendship, but also sort of how I was feeling in its absence. And I think part of it is that I, you know, there are just things that we left unsaid. And I think having left him, not to spoil anything, but like having left him mid-conversation the last time I saw him, having left him as he was imploring me, he wanted me to like go out and hang out with another friend of his who was like having this birthday, but like he wanted to like show this guy a good time because he didn't have like a ton of friends and he just thought it would be like the nice thing to do. And I was like, I don't want to do that. Like, I only want to do what I want to do. I don't want to go out with this like random person, you know, from work just because they don't have. And that's such a kind thing that he wanted to do. I think it really took me a while to want to be the kind of person that he effortlessly was. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so there is a, an intensity to it, but I think part of what you're picking up on is the intensity of my remembering and also mm. like memorializing because, you know, I think in the moments, these are just sort of like fleeting moments, the fleeting moments of college. But the intensity, I think, really accrued over time. And I think it did for all of us who were affected by him. And we just all did kind of different things with it. So we should talk about this as we kind of wrap up. So Ken was, and this is not a spoiler, it's clear in the jacket copy. Ken was murdered really brutally, I guess, but definitely unexpectedly. You know, he's carjacked mm -hmm. and then murdered by the assailants. In your acknowledgments, you kind of note that the book took you about two decades to write. Could you talk a little bit about how, and I had wondered this while I was reading, if writing it out, writing out the experience of your friendship, the intense loss and sudden, you know, very rupturing loss of Ken in the way that he was killed, if that helped you to make some sense or maybe capture, vouchsafe some peace from what had really just been senseless and before that unfathomable loss. Yeah, it did take me a very long time to write this. Yeah, I've been working as a journalist since early 2000s, and this isn't something that I necessarily thought would ever materialize, let alone <laughs> become a book. But I started writing in the immediate aftermath, like right as soon as we all found out that Ken was no longer around. And so writing really brought a sense of relief in those first few days. It was just sort of an escape, like a way to be present, but not actually be present, right? Just to mm. obsessively write down what we ate on our way to the funeral was a way of, I don't know, just avoiding what it is that had actually happened and sort of what it was doing to us. I think in the early years when I was working on this, and it would just be sort of like journal entries or just emails to myself, it was very much a pursuit of what you're describing release, catharsis, a way of making sense. But there's no there's no real mystery, right? There's no real there's no way to make sense of it. And I think what I realized quite literally like as I was writing it was that the only way to move forward was just to 
turn it into something else that makes sense mm. like mm -hmm. to not write something that was purely about regarding and recapturing the past which is where i was stuck but to try and move forward with him and with the influence that he had on me and it might sound like incredibly obvious and i think it's probably something that people are sort of instructed to do or encouraged to do when they're dealing with grief or trauma which is to always think about like moving forward versus moving on completely. But it's something that I, I honestly didn't realize I needed to do until I was writing. And writing is, it didn't necessarily bring me peace, but it mm. changed my relationship to the past. And it was in these moments, because there, there are a lot of moments in the book that are you know funny and kind of like the sort of mundane, weird things you do when you're in college to pass mm -hmm. the time. And writing those moments and kind of living in the everyday joy of being 20 with your friends, I don't think I would have ever been able to feel that joy again had I not written it down. Mm, meaning had you like lost access to the joy because of the tragedy that seemed to kind of bookend it? Yeah, and I think what I was writing was at first, say in like 1998 through the 2000s, was very much dwelling on the past in a way that sort of only acknowledged the tragedy. Like it didn't acknowledge, I didn't realize until I was writing that you can kind of luxuriate in how good you once had it and how special people are. And that doesn't at all diminish the tragedy, right? It doesn't sort of mean you're abandoning this person, as Derrida would have said, but you're actually, you know, just feeling the joy and the loss at the same time. And that's something that I could only arrive at when I was writing. One of the things that I wondered, because it's not a part of the book, because you're narrating a very specific moment in time in the memoir, but I wonder if the experience of having such an intense bond with Ken and then losing him so suddenly, and like we've said before, so senselessly, did that make making friendships after that difficult. And I wonder if the writing of this book kind of re-reckoning with that moment in your life has kind of opened up a space in which perhaps friendship can feel easier if it felt harder in the wake of that tragedy. That's a great question. I don't know that it made, you know, in the immediate, this happened when we were juniors, the summer between junior and senior year. And my memories of senior year, as it is with most of my friends, like it was a weird year for us. And I think a lot of us, I certainly kind of grew apart from my friends. So it was difficult to kind of maintain, I think, those connections throughout mm. this period of our lives because we didn't really know how to deal with something this momentous and this sad. We were offered grief counseling, but you know, this is the late 90s. Notions of like wellness yeah. and mental health were not yeah. as mainstream as they are now. So I think we all did the best we could, but we weren't sure necessarily what to do for one another. Hmm. And so it didn't necessarily impact the way I made friends, but it definitely impacted the way I just regarded people. You know, like I think once something as random as this happens, you're sort of opened up to the dark possibilities of every day in a way that, you know, maybe you're not 
prior. At least I wasn't. Sure. And so I think there would definitely be these friendships I would make very quickly. And then I would think like, how would I remember this person? You know, and like, mm. this is like a very morbid way of thinking about things. But yeah, I talked to a friend of mine who, you know, like lost a friend kind of under similar circumstances. And she continues to do that too. Like she'll kind of make a friend and then think like, how would I remember this person? Or what will my last memory of this person be if I don't see them again? And so that sort of hung over, I think, some of the friendships I made in the aftermath. But, you know, it's not like I was looking for someone to have those same conversations with or anything like that. But it certainly just made me think about just commitments. Like, look, I think the book itself, people can read it as a gesture of friendship, but in no way is it evidence that I was a good friend during this period of time <laughs> or, or in the aftermath, you know? Yeah. And so yeah, yeah. I think a lot of memories I have, you know, now that you've asked this question of like sitting there, like thinking about a friend, but not answering the phone when they called, you know, or mm. sort of writing about things that my friends and I were doing, but like never actually reaching out to them or responding to them. And so, you know, I think I was very much just I don't know what I was searching for or trying to work through, but it did complicate, I think, my personal relationships with friends and other people in my life for a period of time. And was there something that helped to bring you out of that? This is presuming that there's some kind of, you know, victorious arc here, which there <laughs> very much may not be. I know that's how real life works. Yeah. It sounds really weird, but when I write journalism, like when I write criticism, I'm meticulous. Like I know where everything's going. Like I mm -hmm. know what the page will look like. I know what's going to happen in the third paragraph. I know how everything begins and ends. When I actually sat down after all these years with all these notes, with all this collected like ephemera and scraps of journals and notes written on receipts, like I had no idea what it was going to be, let alone how it would work structurally, let alone how it would begin or end. And it was honestly through the process of writing. And I'm generally not a person who, <laughs> who touts the power of writing. You know, like I think writing is useful. It's like a way of thinking, but I don't necessarily endow writing with this talismanic power. Mm -hmm. But there were these moments when I was literally just figuring things out like as the sentences were being typed. Mm -hmm. And so I wouldn't say that the writing this has brought closure or like completed an arc, but it at least allows me to imagine like another arc, you know, or like a new arc. And sometimes that's all we have to hang on to. Yeah. This has been a wonderful conversation. We've been speaking with Hua Xu, author most recently of Stay True. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. This is wonderful. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd really love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Ji Ha Lee. Editorial production by Jake Levins. 
Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley. Music